This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. If you ask, how does the brain work from an engineering perspective, then you might ask, oh, what does the circuit diagram look like? After all, if complex modern processors are designed and understood by engineers, and maybe a simple brain uh, could be likewise understood at that level. So let's consider exactly that, a simple processor. And if you take the lid off, you'll find underneath the, the die, the chip. Looking at it a little bit closer, you'll see that it's broken up into uh, various modules for uh, processing, for inputs from various uh, sources, and for outputs, memory, and likewise in the control. If you look at a small region and zoom in on it, you'll find it's covered by a vast mesh of tiny, tiny wires. Uh, This is about maybe a dozen layers thick. Underneath it all, there are the actual switches, the transistors, uh, which do the, the switching on this. Now, if you want to make it, you just need a few billion dollars, machines like this, and uh, you're, you're good. If you want to reverse engineer it, then maybe you could use some machines like this as one example, uh, which I'll be discussing in more detail, called a FibSim. Now, on the other end, here's another processing unit. Let's take the cover off, and underneath, there's a brain. And it, too, has various modules in it, you know, Optical inputs, they're called optic lobes. Antenna inputs for smell, memory units. They all have different names, mushroom bodies, ellipsoid bodies, and so forth, studied by biologists. So you can also zoom in and look very carefully, and presumably there's also going to be a vast mesh of wiring in there, and somehow buried in underneath all of that should be synapses, which are switching between all of these different wires. Now, if you want to make one of these, you need to invest in an old banana (laughs) and wait, not much cost, and it'll self-assemble. And it's it's amazing, and you've heard about this, you know, in the first talk, and it's it's truly amazing. So now if you want to reverse engineer it, uh, we really need, it's a tough problem, and we need tools from across the spectrum, from biology, from genetics, and I'll talk a little bit of the aspect that can come in from the semiconductor industry, that uh, FibSem. So just to put a, a perspective, let's put the, some dimensions on these and compare them side by side. A current processor uh, is sort of a flattened structure, two and a half dimensions, but the volume of it is under a millimeter. Uh, the fruit fly, uh, it's a nice little blob under a millimeter in size, uh, but not too different in the volume. The number of transistors and switches in the processor are getting pretty impressive, about a billion transistors nowadays. Uh, That's a bit more than the fruit fly. If you go back 10 years, the Pentiums, they had about a comparable number. And the last part now is the the wire size and the transistor size and the dendrite size, synapse size. They're all in the tens of nanometers, uh, very small. And the challenge is to bridge the gap between the small size of uh, a few nanometers, of tens of nanometers all the way up to a good fraction of a millimeter and catch that large dynamic range. So to reliably resolve 
these transistors in all three dimensions, we need to sample uh, probably instead of 50 nanometers, maybe at 5 or 10 nanometer increments. These are the voxels that you'd use to form images, and you've seen before. One can sort of collect many such images in 3D, form a stack. But if you just quickly look at the numbers, how many voxels, how many pixels are there? Eight nanometers compared to half a millimeter, they're, they're lots. They're, it's a good fraction of a petabyte. And if you're acquiring the data at a modest rate of a, a megahertz, uh, then you'd be acquiring data for eight years, even for something simple as a, a fruit fly plane. Now, I should also point out, we do need to really see the connectivity. One needs to go down to the EM level, to the electron microscope level. Uh, light microscopy cannot quite resolve the details and see the fine connectivity. Uh, light microscopy can do many other things, image live, uh, so these, all these techniques are very complementary and uh, support each other. So what is this FibSim? This is uh, basically an instrument where you use Fib, which is a focused ion beam, and it basically abrades away the surface a few nanometers at a time. Uh, the advantage of an ion beam is the abrasion is just a little bit finer, more controlled in the Z dimension. Otherwise, it's very similar to what Mark was talking about earlier, the serial block face cutting. After you abrade or remove a little layer, you image the surface with a scanning electron beam, and then you ablate again, and you cycle through this about every minute. And you keep going and going for as long as you possibly can. And in the end, you gradually reconstruct uh, a circuit. In this case, if you're looking at a semiconductor chip, you can see all the la metal layers inside. If one's looking at a, well, fly brain, then, then you should get a three-dimensional reconstruction of all the details inside. So this here is the uh, outline of one of these synapses. The black part is actually uh, the membrane itself. Ah, and there you can see. So what you saw, uh, you know, time here is uh, moving in in Z, and you'll see on the left picture right there, the dark spots, those are actually the synapses. They're pretty small, and this is a typical fan-in circuit. There are multiple synapses going all onto one dendrite, uh, and you see the opposite in the fly, fan-ins, fan-outs. There are just a variety of structures uh, that are all uh, visible. It's uh, more complex than it is for a mammalian brain. So we got one of these machines and started out. And uh, so we ran it. Three days later, it came to a grinding halt and stopped. And so we imaged one one-thousandth of a brain and uh, couldn't continue, there are problems. And so we came to this conclusion. <laughs> FIPSEM's irrelevant because it can't image anything useful. I continued to be employed <laughs> and worked on the next problem, five years of reliability engineering. Basically, to handle all of these interrupts as they happen, can we anticipate things, make graceful stops if something bad is going to happen, mitigate damage control, and we can restart without loss of anything. Uh, the bar is very high, because if you have a gap in this dense interconnect of wiring, there's no way that you can connect the wires from the left half to the right half, and your circuit diagram is just useless. So you don't want to be there imaging several years into the project and then say, oops. So a few years later, 
here we are imaging now for about a, uh, a three months project. That is looking at the optical lobe. You might have noticed three pieces, uh, the medulla, lobular, and lobular plate. And this is sort of what you see inside a, a fly brain. This is the, the motion you see is, again, is moving uh, in Z deeper and deeper. Uh, initially, the width was about 120 microns. Uh, it's about the width of two human hairs. And, and zooming in about 10x. And we can look at detail. And for example, right there, that's a synapse. And it's connecting this dendrite over to several other guys on the other side. You know, it's all very subtle. And it's, uh, you know, it's a big challenge to, uh, to try to pull all of that information out and segment it. So it took us three months to image this. And then we gave it to some other people. And about three years later, they processed the data. Processing it and analyzing it is by far the bigger challenge. Uh, this, is, this is not easy. And it requires a lot of hand effort, or did require a lot of hand effort to segment, curate, make sure the, there's no mistake in there. And what we're doing here is dense segmentation. We're getting pretty much all of the processes, all of the neurons, identifying them. And then you can pull them out one by one, and you find that they have their own unique shapes and sizes, and uh, compare them to what is known from other experiments. For example, uh, yeah, some of these neurons are, you know, this is coming in from the retina. Some of them are sensitive to an on-transition or to an off-transition or to a left-to-right motion or front-to-back motion. And uh, people can identify that uh, based on optical imaging. But optical imaging can't tell you the detailed synaptic connectivity. But it can give you the classes of neurons so one can connect the two and bootstrap our way forward. In addition, optical imaging can look at live samples, too, and tell which ones are firing on on-transitions and off-transitions, and we can actually monitor that. So all of that data can be put together, and you can begin to identify the components of a circuit diagram. And these are the three major parts that you saw earlier, the medulla, the lobula, and the lobula plate. Up here is the retina. The thing is, with the uh, FibSem, it allows you to make the last little connection, which is to ask, here's one neuron, which we know reacts to a left-to-right on transition. What are its inputs? And you can define the neurons that are responsible for that, characterize those independently, and we make this uh, last step. And then you can begin to test models of the circuit. Is this a coincidence detector uh, based on excitatory inputs? Is it uh, a different version of that? Uh, a NOR detector, where you might have an inhibitory input on one side. And it turns out that it's a little bit of a combination of both are present in the fly brain. And you can even sort of uh, get estimates of what might be causing the delay based on uh, length on the synapse. So having this extra level of detail helps close a lot of open gaps. So, so far, we still haven't gotten to the full fly brain. Uh, and we reverted to another technique uh, called hot knife sectioning to get all the way up. Imagine the fly brain. You chop it up into like a loaf of bread into about 30 pieces, uh, each about 20 nanometers thick. You put it on a little laminated uh, surface, and you have about 30 of these tabs and feed them in to a bunch of machines. And this puts us in the range of getting 
these, uh, this eight FIBSEM year effort maybe down to a little bit more reasonable uh, time, and we are gearing up and trying to expand uh, toward, toward this direction here. And so far, over the past two years, we've come just a, a little ways along that path. Uh, looking in here, we have what we've accomplished uh, called the HIMI brain. Uh, it aspires to be half a brain, but it's a little bit shy of it. It's on a female fly. But it's uh, unilateral over a good part of it, uh, misses some aspects, you know, not too much on the optic lobe, missing the parts below, which are associated with feeding and uh, appetite. Uh, but a lot of modules are in there. Uh, the central complex, uh, which is associated, which is a sort of a uh, internal compass for the fly, and people are studying that independently. Uh, olfactory learning in the mushroom body, lateral horns, uh, all these names are dear to bi biologists studying different parts of the fly brain. And here's what that looks like. That big round circle, the donut that you saw, that's the ellipsoid body, and uh, that's associated with its uh, navigation, sort of uh, internal compass of the fly. And here we're just sort of flying through the data and you can just sort of see the complexity. Here we're getting pretty close. At this you know, resolution isn't as beautiful as what Mark has with a dedicated uh, high-res microscope. But what we're doing right here, as we fly in and out, that's going across that section. We have to make sure that section has good enough quality that we can match the dendrites from one side to the other without loss. And that's, that's critical. And I'll, I'll just let this uh, play a little bit. It's, uh, it's, it's amazing that this thing self-wires, and it looks so disorganized, but in the end, it really is organized. And there are the different modules. We're zooming back out. Here you can see the whole upper head of the fly, fly brain there. Remember, these are several slabs, and we're just going to go through six of them. We have 13 altogether. This represents about two years of imaging that we've done, which has sort of completed this. And what will come next after this, we want to go over, try looking at a male fly, but doing it now in its entirety uh, all the way, and there'll be a, a larger imaging effort. And here we are back to the uh, central complex. So what's next? That data is not good enough by itself. It needs some processing, and it goes off to... Uh, experts, computer science experts who use neural nets, and there have been a lot of fascinating developments in the past few years of uh, what they can, how quickly they can extract it. So they're now maybe at the level where instead of taking 10 times longer than imaging, they might almost be able to keep up and pull out the nerves and get these connectivity diagrams of what nerve connects to what out of the thousands, hundreds of thousands of different nerves in there and give those to biologists so that can be correlated with all the other information that they work with. So I'd like to put this technology, this FibSim, on a little diagram like this just to show where it might fit in, into the world. The bottom axis is size. We're looking at relatively larger size structures. It's getting close to a, um, a millimeter, a little bit below that for the fly brain. And the vertical axis is resolution. There's some techniques out there, as Mark talked about, which can get much better resolution, but the size is going to be a little bit more limited. And we're playing this trade-off between size and resolution, and I think FibSim has a little bit of a sweet spot, and FlyBrain sort of demands some of those, uh, those attributes. Now, the FibSim 
can also be used for in a different modality where you can uh, operate it with lower current. And in there, one might be able to image, let's say, a whole cell with higher resolution. The whole cell smaller in volume, but higher resolution. And images, instead of being blurry like this, can be somewhat crisper. And we can see a more detail of the synapse in the bottom uh, slide over here, like right down here. Uh, postsynaptic uh, vesicles over here. Individual ribosomes can be imaged. And at the top, we can even see microtubules. This is uh, just a random piece of mammalian cortex. And uh, one can take out a part of that, segment it, similar to what Mark has shown. And you can get all the intercellular organelles, uh, endoplasmic reticula, the mitochondria, and mine it for, you know, for various uh, you know, details. Or at the bottom, maybe even label all the vesicles. Uh, you know, it's a little bit up to the biologist how they begin to mine uh, this kind of information. But it is accessible. So where do we go from here? I think next, you know, we'll continue on trying to acquire the, the Flybrain Atlas. It's going to be a little bit of a, a longer-term effort. And, uh, you know, that'll be then combined with all the neural uh, processing, you know, to get the synaptic uh, details and uh, the connectivity diagram. And then that'll be absorbed by other scientists to, uh, with light imaging and uh, behavior to really understand the, the circuitry. I think going on to the next level beyond that, after we have one nice, complete brain, you begin to look at differences. And I think this will be a, another exciting phase uh, for this field where we look at fly-to-fly -fly difference. In the semiconductor industry, if you want to do failure analysis, you do die-to-die. -die. Two computer chips, take two images, subtract them from another. If there's a difference, that's an error, you throw it out or you know where the, the problem is. Here, we have to do a, a similar version, fly to fly. And so, and the differences could be in development stage, not being overwhelmed by all the background, or is there experience, is there memory, can we pull it out, is it gonna be represented in this EM data or not? Uh, but I think it'll be just, you know, fascinating time. Thanks for your attention. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.